So the market will figure it out, but we are the market and everything that we do may change stuff in one direction or the other, especially if we are very influential by being, for example, hash rate uh, controlling people that have some kind of ethics, or if we are developers that can code good code, or if we are so-called influencer that can change minds, uh, or if we are teachers and we are good at explaining things. So in all these roles, we can accelerate the change. This is not, uh, this is not interfering in the free market. This is being part of the free market. Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker, and this is the Bitcoin Podcast. The Bitcoin block height is 821858, and the value of one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. Today's episode is Bitcoin Talk, where I talk with my guest about Bitcoin and whatever else comes up. Today, that guest is Giacomo Zucco. Giacomo is a Bitcoin entrepreneur, consultant, speaker, and advisor. I wanted to talk to Giacomo about ordinals and inscriptions because there's quite a debate raging around these topics right now, and I always appreciate Giacomo's perspective. We start the conversation off talking about what the purpose of Bitcoin is and setting up some definitions which I think is crucial for us to have a constructive conversation in the Bitcoin space. To be honest, I've been pretty ambivalent about ordinals and inscriptions trusting that things will work themselves out and it's really not that big of a deal. But talking with Giacomo changed my perspective a bit. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Giacomo is always both entertaining and informative, and this time is truly no different. As always, you can watch the video version of this episode on Rumble, YouTube, or X by searching at Walker America or listen on Fountain.fm or wherever you get your podcast by searching for The Bitcoin Podcast. If you listen to The Bitcoin Podcast on Fountain, consider giving the show a boost or creating a clip of something you found interesting. If you have not checked out Fountain yet, I highly recommend it. You can send Bitcoin to your favorite podcasters when you find something valuable and earn Bitcoin just for listening to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. And if you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, hit me up on social media or through the website bitcoinpodcast.net. Without further ado, let's get into this Bitcoin talk with Giacomo Zucco. I'm glad we were able to do this. I realize you are a very busy man right now running around, uh, but it sounds like this is a good time for us to have this chat too, but with all uh, all the, shall we say, drama going on of late uh, in the Bitcoin Twitter world and elsewhere. So I think it'll be a, a good opportunity. I always like to pick your brain. And you have a very unique way of, I think, explaining things simply to people. And that is very much needed at this time, because clearly there's a lot of confusion around various things. Uh, for talking about ordinals and inscriptions and what is censorship and what is spam and who gets to define what is each. And do we believe in the free market or not? And so I, I want to chat about some of those things uh, and then, you know, 
we can go wherever this conversation takes us as well. There are no rules in this fucking Bitcoin podcast. So it is, uh, it is free so you're range. you're not going to censor me if I, I, if I change subject, okay? I will That's not good. censor you one bit. You can say whatever. We can, we can talk about your thoughts about people who put pineapple on their pizza if you want. That can be, honestly, <laughs> we can take up like a half hour with that if need be. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank you for having me and thank you for the patience at uh, rescheduling. I appear busy mostly because I am probably the most disorganized Bitcoiner ever. So yeah, that's, that's our. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, we were able to get some time together and our time is scarce. And so I'll, I'll try to be respectful of yours here today. Uh, but so, I mean, if you're good with it, let's just, let's dive into this and maybe we can just sort of set the stage. I think that probably anybody who's listening to this will know who you are, probably has seen you speak. You know, you're an entrepreneur, a, a technologist, a technologist, if I can use that word, maybe. You advise a bunch of Bitcoin companies. You have spoken about Bitcoin in English and Italian all over the world. Uh, you are I mean, it's Italian. not really English, but it's, it's yeah, so some people say it's similar. It's it's better English than a lot of Americans still speak, so don't don't feel too bad. But but let's just let's just start out with with a simple question. Let's take it back to the beginning to warm us up here. And that question is who is Giacomo Zucco? How did he get here today to be this toxic maximalist that he is, uh going around the world and educating people about Bitcoin and how, what what was that journey? So my journey was um, was a journey initially of uh, let's say uh, multi multiplicity, multiplicity of interests and uh, dispersivity of character. So like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an inventor. Then I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I did a high school about classical letters and archaeology. But then I realized that archaeologists are not like Indiana Jones, uh, like fighting Nazis in the jungle. It's more boring. It's more like digging up uh, uh, fragments of vases in Pompeii. And so I say, oh, no, now I want to be a physicist. So I, I entered the university to do physics. I finished it. I got my degree in theoretical physics, but by then I was completely bored out of physics and I wanted to study economics. I, I didn't want to do that in university, so I started to do it by myself, uh, which was, I think, a lucky, a lucky strike. And, um, and then uh, I, I was changing all the time. In 2012, in the fall and, and in winter of 2012, I was working in Accenture for my fourth year as a technology consultant. And part of my job was uh, related with the fiat payment system. So I was uh, describing some uh, flows in fiat payment system. So that was one part of my life. Also, I was an activist, a political activist in two different groups. One group was more related to, uh, let's say, privacy issues. I was uh, going to cheer uh, about uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks uh, discussing uh, stuff like, uh, uh, you know, anonymity online and stuff like that. The other group was mostly about uh, economic issue, Austrian economics, uh, central banks, uh, inflation. And these two groups were not uh, anyhow related. They would, uh, I mean, I was one of the very few people uh, encompassing both groups because the first was very uh, let's say left-leaning, left-libertarian-leaning, mostly like, uh, you know, um, uh, social libertarians uh, with, uh, with a very progressive kind of mindset. The second group was actually a very conservative group, so talking mostly about the gold standard and stuff like that. So in, um, in December 2012, I heard about Bitcoin three times in, uh, in the span of two weeks. 
from the three different uh, groups. First, it was about uh, dark uh, web and donation to WikiLeaks. Then it was about uh, an article, I think, by by Surda or somebody like at Mises, Mises Institute about Bitcoin as the new gold standard. And then one week later, there was a, a, an email in Accenture about the blockchain technology. So uh, that, that changed my mind because I finally found one thing that was unifying all the different and very dispersive uh, passions and, uh, and interests that I had. But it was still just an interest. I got obsessed with that for several months. And then my wife in uh, May 2000, uh, 2013 told me, look, you are obsessed about Bitcoin. You talk about Bitcoin all the time, but you are doing still, your job is still uh, legacy stuff. Well, we didn't use the term legacy back then or the term fiat, but your, your job is boring stuff. And uh, your political, uh, political activist goes nowhere. It's just costing you money and time. You're just wasting time to achieve nothing. Maybe if you do something which is Bitcoin related, you can do something which, is, which basically satisfies your desire for activism. But you can also make a profession out of that because your job is about describing technology and, and uh, abstracting technology and modeling technology and using, using technology. So this is a technology. This is also a social revolution. Let's do it together. So since then, I'm still uh, very dispersive, uh, but I'm only dispersive within the field of Bitcoin. Now, uh, about the toxic maximalism, I was a shitcoiner uh, for all 2013 and great part of 2014. But then I started to uh, basically meet uh, people uh, that were explaining me uh, two sides. The first side was the technological reason behind toxic maximalism. That was basically the, fi the, fi the fact that all the other pipe dreams that was being sold about uh, Ripple, NXTs, all this stuff, were, they were all technologically unsound. People started to show me, I, I was coming from my job was related to computer science. Somehow I was using computers, but I was not at all, um, I was not at all uh, doing anything related with uh, open source software. I didn't know how to use Git. I didn't know really how to dig into this stuff. I was a, a Windows person basically. So uh, it was very, very far from myself. So these people started to show me the technological shortcoming and the technological trade-offs. Uh, somebody, uh, that was probably the, uh, one year later, but somebody gave to me Andrew Postra treatise on altcoins, which explains why altcoins seem a good idea, but 99.9% .9 of the time they're just making wrong trade-off cho uh, choices with a lot of examples. And the other side was economical. I met other people that told me, uh, why is Bitcoin in important? And I say, because Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is scarce. And okay, why are all... Uh, why are, are cryptocurrencies important? And my first reaction, well, because they are just as scarce as Bitcoin. And then I stopped. No, they are not. By definition, cryptocurrency is an asset, is a global asset class that can be inflated in any possible way. They can be inflated because you can create more and more cryptocurrencies. They can be inflated because each cryptocurrency is very often inflationary in itself, like, uh, let's say, Ether. And they can be inflated because even if the cryptocurrency is not uh, inflationary, it can be easily changed to become, uh, to become inflationary whenever the incentives will bring in that direction. So Bitcoin is uh, scarce and disinflationary while everything else is not. So I basically uh, reached my status of uh, 
evil toxic maximalist around i would say half of 2014 and uh, and i have to say that you know the 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 curse of maximalist is that since 2014 until now almost 10 years stuff keep giving uh like reality keeps avenging the maximalist position uh it's always uh, the same uh, prediction that it keeps uh, happening and happening. I met a lot of people at the heights of 2016 uh, uh, following ICOs. I gave a few presentations on why ICOs are, are bullshit and they just all collapsed. Then the last cycle, I did the same with uh, uh, DeFi and NFTs and now everything is finishing the, basically this is the bull market after the, the crash. And then the next bull market, everybody will forget about NFTs and DeFi and there will be some other buzzwords. So that's basically my entire life story. I, I love it. You know, I, uh, I worked at Accenture as well for, let's see, a little over four years, a different timeline than you. I came, came slightly after, but uh, uh, good to know we, we have the same, uh, let's say, corporate alma mater. So that's uh, always interesting. <laughs> But, you know, I, I appreciate the background because I think it's it's good to set the stage and to also, um, to your point about the curse of maximalism, you know, that you, you sound perhaps like this naysayer all the time because you're saying, look, this is a scheme, this is bullshit, this isn't going to work, this is going to crash, it's going to, you know, a lot of people are going to get wrecked. And then maybe things go okay for a while and a few people make a lot of money. And they say, see, those maximalists just want to keep you poor or keep theirs just so angry and toxic personalities with their dark triad. And then history just keeps repeating itself. And the new flavor of the month with regard to altcoins or DeFi or whatever it might be turns out to just be a lot of vaporware again that enriches a few people at the expense of nearly everyone else. And so I, I think that that's maybe a, a good place to jump off and start because I think right now is a very, well, I'm pretty new to this also. I'm pretty new to Bitcoin. I only, I only started uh, really learning about Bitcoin in 2020. So I'm, uh, you know, this is my first, first bear market. This is, you know, it's, it's all still new to me. I don't have all the historical context that someone like you does. I can read about it, but it's a very different thing to have actually been experiencing it as it was happening because hindsight's always 2020 with a lot of these things. Right. But I'm curious, you know, let's, if we can start off with just in your opinion, what is the, what is the purpose of Bitcoin? Because I think it's an important place to start so that we can be at kind of a shared understanding with anyone who's listening about where you're coming from when you make the arguments that you do. So if your, you know, basic explanation for this is why, you know, Bitcoin exists, this is what it is meant to do. So I think that uh, not only you had to make up for some historical context by reading uh, coming in around 2020, but it was the same for me. I came in in 2013, let's say uh, a few months before. And I had to do a lot of readings before, but not just because Bitcoin existed since 2009, uh, but because Bitcoin was the apex, the, was the final uh, point in a quest that was actually going on since uh, 
many years or even many decades, or in some interpretation, uh, if you go to the historic, history of sound money, even centuries, basically. So uh, in the, uh, the, it's very interesting for me that in order to understand Bitcoin properly, you cannot use something like the white paper. If you read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, it's very clear that the purpose of this of the white paper was to co to explain to uh, some people already aware of the objective of a anonymous uh, decentralized digital cash how double spending could be resolved. Ninety nine percent of the focus of the white paper is a you know uh, you guys were trying to solve double spending without centralization. Nobody managed to, I did, here is why. But there is no point about, for example, the 21 million limits, which is a very important characteristic of Bitcoin, is not, not even mentioned there. There is no, nothing about a smart contract system of Bitcoin that Satoshi was designing, nothing about script or all the consequences. Uh, the difficulty adjustment itself is mentioned, but it's not even clear that there will be exactly a 10 minutes uh, block rate. So most of the important halving is not even mentioned there is just one single sentence that say by the way the subsidy can can eventually go away to be replaced by fees but that's not the focus the focus is how to avoid double spending so if you read about satoshi there are may there are some other uh like in the white paper the only purpose uh which is commented is commercial commercial peer-to-peer -peer, uh, exchange on over the internet so it's just like e-commerce this is just an e-commerce uh, e-commerce innovation, nothing else. But if you read the Satoshi's email to the to the Linux Foundation, then you can find him talking about central banks debasing the currency. And when he selected an article newspaper to uh, to prove the the date of the Genesis block, he doesn't select an article talking about uh, e-commerce uh, uh, e-commerce friction. He selects one talking about the bailout for banks by the UK government, basically. So, uh, and in many other, like there are some Satoshi um, uh, posts about uh, the Mises regression theorem. So the, the guy was, or the guys, or the guys, or the gals were versed in uh, Austrian economics, or at least very familiar with, uh, with economics. They knew about the cypherpunk theory because they were quoting uh, text from uh, cypherpunks, uh, cypherpunk pioneers like uh, Finney or Adam Beck. So there was a there was all a story before. So given this context, my idea of of uh, what is Bitcoin for, what is the purpose of Bitcoin, is basically twofold. I think that some people, uh, especially people like uh, uh, Fonayek, were looking since a lot since a very long time for a way to. Put mo to 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 get har uh, hard sound money back, uh, and uh, you know famously Hayek said in the in the 70s we cannot do that against the government, so we need to create something that, we that they cannot stop. Is lie roundabout way. This is a very famous uh, prediction, and this seems uh, very far from Bitcoin, but it's not because just before Bitcoin was created, e-gold was attempted by an American oncologist that was a fan of uh, Austrian economics. He tried to make gold great again in the digital era. So he tried to take gold, physical gold, and have a, a basically a, a zero bureaucracy, email-based digital gold representation that could replace the US dollar in the, in the, basically in the, in the internet domain. So there was that. And that was taken down right before 
the start of Bitcoin. So many Austrians started to realize that in order to do something like gold, to achieve monetary goals, they did really have to find a round, uh, a sly roundabout way to create something that could not be stopped. So in a way, Austrian people were starting to discover was uh, was called the, the cypherpunk idea that you have to create the tools that cannot be stopped in order to uh, to manage to do uh, monetary monetary innovation or uh, financial innovation or innovation of any kind. It's interesting that uh, there was a very like a similar parallel story on the other side of the coin. So you had the cypherpunks; they were not motivated by um, Austrian economics, they, they knew almost nothing about economics. They just wanted privacy as a tool to defend the little guy against the cyberpunk uh, dystopian future. So they wanted to protect privacy, anonymity. Uh, and their idea was we can, uh, when we are in our physical lives, the government is, uh, is basically screwing up anyway. But when we are on the internet, we can be free because nobody knows we, where we live and who we are, so they cannot come and hurt hurt us physically. So this is the cypherpunk, the crypto anarchist dream. There is anarchism because see, if nobody can hurt you when you express an idea or when you provide a service, the only thing they can do is insult you or criticize you or give you a bad reputation. That's the only thing they can do. So that's anarchism in a way. Uh, the the non-aggression principle on the internet is uh, by is by definition is by default because you cannot aggress somebody if not just metaphorically and verbally. So these people were studying about, uh, uh, they were discussing the uh, stuff like black markets on the internet, and they realized they needed a form of digital cash. But some of them, especially Nick Sabo, he was the main guy uh, behind this, they realized that in order to create something with value, they really needed to understand what constitutes uh, good money. So Nick Sabo started to research from the cypherpunk perspective, the history of money from shells to uh, to basically to beans, uh, to everything. He, he wrote a lot of treatises about the, uh, the uh, labor-based theory of value and work as a, as a proxy measurement for uh, value and all this stuff. And you had other people like in, um, in 2001, you can see a cypherpunk uh, mailing thread where there is uh, uh, people saying, how can we do reusable proof of work? And then somebody say, we can use the cash technology. And then Adam Beck says, okay, we can have hash, back, uh, hash cash with, uh, with reusable addresses. And then Peter Todd, he was 16 by then, he was chiming in uh, while 16 and say, no, but this would be hyperinflationary. Because if you have a proof of work, a proof of work can just uh, uh, increase because more people will want to create proof of work and uh, the, uh, the evolution of physical machines will be such that you will have hyperinflation, basically. So the cypherpunks were rediscovering, uh, in, uh, even without realizing it, all the, uh, the baggage of, uh, uh, of uh, Austrian theory. So basically reasonable uh, reasonable economics principles from uh, from abstract first principle and at the same time uh, people like e-gold fans so austrian uh, fans they were rediscovering or discovering for the first time uh, this kind of uh, cypherpunk theory that uses privacy as a way to avoid government uh, crackdown and i think that these two things merge in bitcoin so to answer your question that seemed seemed very simple but my my answer was very convoluted Bitcoin is, uh, for me, uh, and it's supposed to be hard money, 
So money which is not easy to print and to inflate away, like the bad fiat money, and also dark money. So money which is not easy to track and confiscate and censor, alike fiat money. So this is basically the, the magical combination. Uh, since nobody is in charge, nobody can print more and nobody can stop you from buying goods or services with it. Of course, that doesn't mean, well, we, we can discuss about this uh, later, but it doesn't mean that you can, uh, that uh, crypto anarchism is not the fact that you can use any software however, how you want without consequences for you and for the others. Even in crypto anarchism, if you change uh, on your browser, you go as a name, so nobody can initiate violence against you. But you go in your crypto, uh, crypto anarchist heaven and you change your browser in a way that it is not compatible with HTTP anymore, then this change will, uh, even if you're free to do it, will have consequences like getting you out. If you go, if you connect to a server and you try to DDoS the server, even in crypto anarchism, the server will just uh, ban your, your uh, uh, it, it will just try to prevent the uh, US attacks. So it will, it will still be freedom because nobody is coming for you to, to initiate violence against you. But of course, it's freedom in the context of uh, technical limitations. So it's not freedom like everybody can literally do whatever they want with the software without any consequence on their side on another people's side. There is still the problem to managing TDOS. There's still the problem to managing uh, scarce resources. All the debate about the block size. I remember that even, so we will talk about the current drama. But even the past drama, the drama about the block size, was also um, somehow politicized in this angle. I mean, are you for the free market? So how cannot you be for unlimited blocks? Because if you are dictating the size of the block, that's not the free market. Any transaction should be allowed. Otherwise, you are censoring big blocks or you are censoring transactions that are larger than 10 megabytes. Why are you censoring me if, if this is free, free speech money? So I was anticipating a little bit this. But anyway, I will go back to just uh, hard money and dark money. Now, I, I love it and I appreciate the historical context because, again, context matters. And it matters especially in the context of these current discussions that are happening. Because I think there are also a lot of people engaging in these discussions who do not have the full historical context, not just for what brought Bitcoin about, and, and kind of those two sides, the cypherpunk side, but then also the Austrian side and those two schools of thought sort of merging into this hard money, dark money paradigm, but also don't even have the more recent context of some of the, you know, maybe they've read the block size wars or they've, you know, gone back and seen some old articles from the time, but they may be completely unaware of some of the other, uh, other things, other discussions happening around Bitcoin, colored coins and all these things. Some of the things that you've, uh, you gave a, a great talk at BTC Prague called Ordinals are Retarded. And you went through this whole kind of history and showing that, look, this is not necessarily something new. I think people also get very confused about the, uh, they use the term ordinals to talk about everything when really there's kind of two things. There's ordinals, which is uh, basically just a meta protocol it's not you know not really on bitcoin at all it's just people agreeing to a set of rules for how they're going to do ordering then there's inscriptions which are actually inscribing data into the bitcoin blockchain and so those two things you know i, I think language matters and the terms that we use matter so we should be specific about those and i want to dive into that 
but I, I'll ask you for one more definition before we uh, jump into that, which is how do you define spam? Because I think this is really at the heart of a lot of these discussions. Uh, right back to what you said about uh, people making the argument that, and I've probably made this argument in some way myself uh, at one point saying, look, if it's a transaction and it's valid, then how can it be spam? You know, and, and so I think it's important that we, we first start with how do you define spam? You know, and to the people who say, well, if someone is paying fees, then it must be a legitimate transaction uh, and therefore cannot be spam because look, it's allowed. How do you think about that? How do you, how do you differentiate what is uh, spam versus valid spam versus this is the free market? What's, what's your framework for approaching that? So of course, uh, spam is just a word, so we are free to switch the definition, but what I will try to give is the definition which is historically consistent. Because sometimes uh, when we define words in Bitcoin, we follow this kind of uh, new redefinition that doesn't make sense outside. And so this, uh, even if we are free to change definitions, this will carry over a lot of uh, uh, assumption that we have for the old definition of the word uh, in the new in the new context. For example, I give you an example that has nothing to do with this, just to set the, the, the discussion and that it will enter into the spam discussion. Cash. When people are saying before Bitcoin, you are paying cash, that doesn't mean something which is cheap or fast to transmit, uh, trans transmit at distance. It's the other way around. If you pay with, uh, with credit, you can just uh, 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 basically take up the phone and say, I owe you these dollars, which is instant and very cheap. But if I have to send you a container with cash, then that would be very expensive and very slow. So somehow in the context of Bitcoin during the block size wars, there was this, this, this kind of distortion of the world in which if Bitcoin is peer-to-peer -peer cash, in order to be cash, it must be very cheap to move a distance and very fast to move a distance. Otherwise, it's not uh, responding to the definition of digital cash. But if you, if you think back, there is nothing in the word cash that is about being cheap or fast. It's the other way around. Spam is something similar. Your first instinct was to consider spam something that must... Uh, uh, something that by definition being spam must somehow violate the rules of the protocol. But in all the previous uh, uses of the word spam, this was never the case. So imagine, for example, email spam, that was the, the principal uh, problem that we, that we will analyze. In email spam, all the spam email were perfectly valid from the point of view uh, of the peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, decentralized, permissionless, SMTP protocol. So the problem was that these these uh, these transactions, these these emails, these, these packets, this data, they were valid from the point of view of the protocol. But people creating the protocol didn't consider uh, and or couldn't consider that somebody could could create valid emails, absolutely valid emails, and put into these emails stuff that you didn't want to read if you are a receiver, or you didn't want to relay if you if you were a, a voluntary remailer because spam was especially bad at the beginning for people that were trying to help the network altruistically by broadcasting, relaying emails, so the remailer. The problem of the broadcaster is that spam was making something altruistic very, very expensive because now you had to relay not only the messages that you wanted other people to read, but also the messages that the other people didn't want to receive in the first uh, in the first place. Uh, this goes on even if we're not talking about decentralized protocols anymore, 
if we, if we talk about Twitter, when you receive spam in your uh, comments, when you have the spam bot, how is your training going? They are not violating any technical rule of Twitter. They are just uh, uh, giving you some information you don't want. And uh, even if you say, okay, but if there is zero cost, then uh, it's spam. But if it's expensive to do it, it cannot be spam. But that's not the case either in normal language. When you receive a spam phone call, they do incur in a cost. The problem is that the cost of actually paying for the call network uh, is enough to, give, to make the call, but it's not enough to compensate for the, for, the, uh, earth, for the gain that the spammer has by disturbing you. So you don't want to receive this uh, phone call. It's bad for you. It's something that you didn't ask, is consuming your town, time, is ruining your phone ex uh, experience. So you have your phone, you are doing something, you, you answer the phone, is somebody selling you some shit you don't want. This is ruining your experience. But the telephone network is not concerned because they are receiving the payment. You are not. You are not paid to receive this phone call. So it's bad for you. But the telephone company is. So the spammer, and we always call these this phone calls spam because it is spam. But the spammer will, will sustain a cost not to pay the victim of the spam. They will sustain a cost to pay for just the middleman of the, of the spam attack. And the spam attack will be somehow profitable to them because, for example, uh, even if they have to bother 1 million people, the 10 people that are actually end up uh, purchasing the service or whatever make up for all the expenses that they, that they basically consume. So let's go back again to historical context. What is the, where, what is the, the, the genesis of the word spam? You, you know it, right? I guess being basically a, a Bitcoin comedian, you also know the, the origin of that. It's uh, the Monty Python. Uh, the Monty Python Flying Circus. So the, the initial setup is uh, guys in a restaurant, they trying to order to the waiter, but while they try to order, there is a table uh, full of Vikings, and these Vikings are basically, uh, they're basically shouting spam, 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 spam. So the guy cannot make a normal conversation with the waiter. They cannot communicate information to the waiter and receive uh, information from the waiter, uh, waiter in order to order the food, because some other people that, by the way, we don't know, but we may assume that the, these Vikings they paid to to get the table and to enter. So nobody is saying that the Vikings are not paying. Well, usually you can assume Vikings are just pillaging or something, but they seem like very polite Vikings, and they are they are sitting at the table. They paid the restaurant, but they didn't pay you, so you are not the one being paid. The restaurant is, and they are disrupting your communication with the waiter by shouting spam, spam, spam. Of course, from a, uh, from a uh, like incentive analysis point of view, Vikings have the reason to shout, to shout spam. They spend money to get into the restaurant. They are, they are spending their time to shout. They are consuming their vocal charts in order to, to, to shout spam, spam, spam. So they have some incentives to do it, but you, didn't want that for a restaurant. You didn't enter in the restaurant for that, and that's actually ruining your experience. So in, within this definition, if you think about uh, uh, spam in the context of Bitcoin, you don't have immediately to go to the on-chain spam. There are many ways of spam. For example, when you start up Bitcoin Core, when you do it default without any change, Bitcoin Core will connect to some other peers. Now, if the peers are sending a number of uh, uh, basically a request that is uh, above a certain threshold, the, your peer will automatically consider, consider this peer 
spammer. So they will consider that there is a either incompetence or malice into overwhelming your node with a request. And in order to protect your node from the consequences, they will blacklist the peers. Now we cannot say blacklist anymore. We have to we have to say blocklist, but that's basically what's uh, what's going to happen. So uh, even in the context of uh, IP, there are spam filters. Of course, Bitcoin is way more complex than simple IP rules. You also have uh, block uh, blocks that are keeping all the on-chain layer one transactions, and you can have spam in that as well. For example, if you accept all the uh, microscopic transactions that uh, uh, that have an economical content which is lower than the amount of data that they transmit by some definition which could be the bitcoin core standard definition or or your definition if you change the the configuration file then you will filter them out these are by the way valid transactions these are called for example sub dust uh transactions so transactions that move such a tiny amount of uh, of bitcoin that the main core developers decided to assume that it's inconvenient for a node to spend the, even the energy and the time to download it and validate it because they are so stupid that the, the, the effort for a node to validate it will be more than the economic weight of the transaction itself. So Bitcoin Core will exclude them. Of course, those are still valid by consensus because it's very hard to make uh, to bake that rule into the consensus because the concept of dust will depend on the price. It will change a lot. So if you find that in a block, you will accept it. Your Bitcoin core will accept it. But if you find it in your mempool, your Bitcoin core will reject it. And you may say, okay, dust is a special case because they are not paying much fees. So probably they will never enter a block. But there were also cases in which, for example, if you make a, a Bitcoin transaction with uh, three op returns, so you have three outputs which are all op returns, and you put a huge fee on that, your Bitcoin core currently will reject it, since always, because uh, the developer, they said, okay, uh, this is not bad enough to be considered invalid. It will be messy to consider it invalid, but this is clearly something that it's indicated that something wrong is going on, and this is going to consume a lot of, uh, potentially this can bring a lot uh, they, can, they can bring on a payload which is very very large. So let's let's uh, eliminate it. Let's filter it out from the mempool. Another case is if you create a transaction with a giant fee that has a, an op return which is only one, but is but it is for example 100 bytes, it will be deleted by your mempool by Bitcoin Core as a spam prevention filters. Now there can be a lot of discussion about uh, this, uh, well, but I'm going to, to add myself. You only ask it, what is spam? So my definition will be spam is defined by two people, not the attacker. If you, if you use the attacker as the person that can define spam, then spam cannot exist. Every kind of spam activity will be profitable in the eyes, will be useful, will have some economical utility in the eyes of the spammer. Otherwise, it will not be spamming. So the only reasonable definition of spams are undesired uh, information that are disrupting your communication experience as, as decided by either the final receiver that wants to just read emails and instead they will just keep receiving stuff or the relier, the, uh, the technical infrastructure that would like to um, help the others by relaying messages, but they cannot keep up with this. So they know that these messages are useless for the final uh, user, and they still see that these messages uh, take up 
a huge percentage of their effort. So uh, the typical in the email industry, uh, the situation was like, I would like to remail, I would like to relay, but since 90% of my effort, which I'm doing for free, is, uh, is happening because uh, the, this email that nobody wants to read are reaching a, a, a final uh, recipient that doesn't want to read them, now I stop providing my effort because this is not right. I, I'm wasting my effort to help attackers instead of helping uh, other people. And this is also have a very strong, um, has also a very strong uh, connection with Bitcoin, where you as a node are not paid to your work of enforcing the rule and uh, broadcasting the transaction. Uh, the miner that finds the block is paid for the block space, but only the miner. Every other miner that is not the lucky one will have to uh, download and validate the transaction and even store them in many cases uh, for in exchange of for nothing. And you, if you are not a miner, you will have to validate and uh, so download, validate, and eventually even store in some cases the transaction for in exchange for nothing. So even if uh, the spammer is paying one miner, the specific miner that includes the, the spam, he's not paying the victim of the spam and he's not paying all the other people that are putting resources for free in order to uh, make this system work uh, at the end. So it's very similar to the telephone company example. The, the phone spammer is paying the telephone line. He just, he's just not paying you. And so you want him to stop and you will adopt any technical means that you can in order for him to stop spamming you. Honestly, I hate spam. When there's too much spam creating noise, it is hard to find the signal. Here's some signal I wish I would have tuned into much earlier, and that is Bitcoin-only hardware. Go to bitbox.swiss walker and use the promo code walker for 5% off the Bitcoin-only Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Again, it is Bitcoin-only. It's fully open source. Just go to their GitHub and verify for yourself. You don't have to trust me. It's also super easy to set up, and it's a great tool whether you're a seasoned psychopath or a new Bitcoiner. And when you go to bitbox.swiss walker and use that promo code walker for 5% off, you also help support another fucking Bitcoin podcast. So thank you. I think that it's a, uh, a very good analogy with both, I mean, to compare it at the the protocol level to email, and then to compare it at kind of the, uh, also the user experience, let's say level to phones, uh, because, you know, and there's a couple of points I want to touch on in there, but maybe a, a good place to start is, uh, I believe it's the case that with the advent of so much spam in email, this is ultimately what ended up leading to a great degree of centralization from email providers, because the tools, the systems, the blacklists or block lists, excuse me, that were required in order to actually deal with the level of spam that there was, were so much more expensive and onerous than any, you know, single, uh, you know, person, email relay operator could possibly deal with, that we ended up centralizing email and centralizing more and more and more to the point where now there are what, 10 different email providers. Uh, you know, if you're not using you know, G, like most people are probably using Gmail, but we got to this point where because we didn't have a good way to deal with spam, because SMTP had ossified to a certain extent, there was no technical solution to this problem at the protocol level, and it had to be solved 
basically above the protocol level through centralization of providers. Is that a fair characterization? I think it is, and there is a very good uh, presentation by uh, by Jenson Lop about yeah. this uh, this same problem that he gave in uh, in Lugano. Uh, it was a uh, uh, it was very good. Even if Jameson disagrees with me about all the discussion that we are having right now, I think Jameson fell into the semantical trap of defining spam as some something invalid. Still, the presentation itself is very good. I, I suggest everybody to see it. It's not like there was not another solution. By, by except creating whitelist. The problem is that this solution arrived slightly, slightly too late. This solution was Hashcash proposed by Adam Beck. And this solution was basically the, the, the starting point of Bitcoin in a way. So, uh, so Hashcash was a possible alternative solution from uh, except uh, other than centralization and whitelists uh, that, that, as you said, reduced the, um, the, 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 the permissionless open email protocol to de facto a permissioned close the centralized protocol. Right now you can start up your own email server. No, nothing can prevent you from doing that, but nobody will receive your email anyway if you don't get whitelisted by, by Google or Yahoo or Microsoft or whatever. So that's a, a very that's a very good example. So it's not like even here, people may think that the problem with email is that uh, the attacker can attack for free, but that's not exactly the right uh, framework in my opinion. The right framework is uh, uh, the the way the cost grows with the volume of the information delayed. I make and I make an example. If I want to send you spam physical snail mail, I can and actually you do receive physical spam. That does happen. It's just that nobody is so worried because the cost to send one spam physical email is let's say one. The cost to send two. It's not exactly two, it's a little bit less because of economies of state, but it's, but it's almost two. The cost to send one million is not one million, but it could be like uh, nine, uh, nine, uh, nine, uh, 99, so it's very, very close to one million, basically. So the cost to sending physical email, uh, physical mail uh, as a spam grows almost linearly with the number. With email, it's not the case. The cost is basically very, very, uh, basically almost flat. To send one spam email, you do have a, you do have an expense which is x but to send two email to two people you don't have double the cost you have slightly more than the first cost so the cost always grows with volume but but very 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 slow almost flat so it's interesting that in bitcoin we don't have exactly like in the telephone network where there is spam the cost will increase with the number of phone calls but maybe you can have some like flat deals so the spammer will probably buy uh, our time in a very great quantity so that uh, making one th 1, 000, uh, 1 million of uh, phone calls will cost him not 1 million time as doing one. So he the spammer will manage to optimize cost. And in Bitcoin, there is something weird. When you do manage to pay for your block space, uh, basically managing to, to, to buy your block space, you will have redundancy of your data not by one node, but by every possible node forever. Maybe they will not store it if they prune, but they will have to download it and they will have to validate it forever. So from the, from the point of view of a spammer, somebody that wants his information to reach people that don't, that don't want this information on average, because even here, consider the reason you are receiving spam email is that somebody among the receivers will 
uh, will uh, attribute some value on that. Otherwise, the, the spammer will eventually get tired to do something just because he's evil. He's not evil, but he's available to ruin the experience for everybody just to reach a tiny portion that think that that's actually available. So sp spam is valuable, of course, by definition for the spammer, otherwise he will not spam, but it's also valuable for a very, very small portion of the receivers. But in, in order to, to reach him, the spammer is, uh, has no um, moral uh, question to actually ruin the experience for everybody else. In Bitcoin, the situation is similar. You pay for uh, just one block space, so you pay one person basically, and now you can basically have a redundancy of this same information on any possible future Bitcoin node forever. So this is not close. To, this is not close to the physical mail, where having one having an indeterminate number of people receiving your email forever would be infinitely expensive. So if you want to send a physical email, it's not just expensive to send it to many people. It's also expensive. To, to, to send it forever. If you want the people to receive this mail forever, you will have to spend an unbounded amount of money. The telephone network, even if you can buy minutes as a good discount, um, they, in order to, to call people forever, you still have to pay an, an indefinite amount of money. And still, you do have spam in the physical mail, and you do have spam in the phone network. In Bitcoin, it's even closer to a mail in a, in a certain sense, because by only paying one block space inclusion, uh, participating to the auction, you will ride for free. You will, you will basically piggyback for free. You will free ride the entire network of nodes forever, uh, as far as the, as the global consensus goes. And I think that that's a, that's a perfect segue here, because I think you've, You've done an excellent job of establishing the fact that, yes, uh, we can all agree from the Austrian point of view that all value is subjective, right? But when it comes to spam, we have to, again, clarify that, yes, there are people who are finding that valuable, else they would not engage in the spamming activity to begin with. Uh, there are also a subset of people who receive the spam who end up finding it valuable as well. Otherwise, there would not be the economic incentive for the spammer to spam in the first place. Where it becomes spam is when the vast majority of, uh, let's say, people utilizing that network, operating that network, view it as unwanted, where it is unsolicited, unwanted, and to them, uh, yes. not, not valuable. It, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I would just, uh, I think that it's perfect representation, perfect uh, summary. The only thing that could be tricky is, is to define the majority. I think mm. that there is an element of, let's say, democracy. Like if uh, many people think it's spam is spam, that could be the definition. But I think that uh, uh, traditionally, the definition of spam was also based on uh, t uh, time uh, time uh, order. Like to give you an ex another example that would be considered trivial outside of, of Bitcoin, and it's not trivial for Bitcoin only because we like to reanalyze everything and redefine everything. But for example, you go to the beach, and uh, you sit down to, to sleep. Somebody arrives with a very loud music and dance, then you will consider this guy an annoying asshole. Uh, while if, if there is somebody dancing on a beach and you go there and you just throw down your, your robe and you, and, you, and, you, and you lie down and you, and you shout, silence, I want to sleep. Now you are the annoying asshole. 
So there is not just the element of, so the fact that the annoying asshole is one and the other is one or one is 10 and the other is one. The pure democracy is not the only thing at rule when you talk about unwanted things in a system. There is also typically the assumption that people that, that were using the system, people that arrived first, they did some sort of homesteading on the, on the system. They joined the system based on some kind of social consensus that can be uh, explicit or implicit. Now you are changing the social consensus. Now you have to basically prove that that could be good for everybody else. Otherwise that would be considered abusive, even if it's, even if it's still free market in the sense that there's, there's no, this is still cyberpunk. So you are not hurting me physically. So there is no violence. It's still free market. is not an abuse. It's not a, a violation of the non-aggression principle, but it is an abusive behavior from the point of view of netiquette. It's something like, let me give another example. I create a forum which is about fishing. It's all about fishing. Like how do you fish, the kind of fish, and, and that's it. Now, you really love gardening. And you come to my forum in the specific session of uh, uh, fishing equipment, and you keep posting stuff about gardening. So it doesn't, so now I say, you are spamming. And now you, you call 100 friends, or maybe you just generate 100 other accounts, and you say, no, no, let's make a vote. Who is spamming who? And your 1,000 sack puppets, they will vote for, uh, for uh, fishing guys being the spammers, and the other not. So it's not just a matter of counting the heads. It's also a matter of establishing the history of the tool. You create a tool like a forum for, for fishers, uh, a fishman, fishermen, and now you have the gardener coming in, uh, later, so this is not a matter of the purely majority. It's a matter of established use of the system. I know it's it's uh, it's not perfectly. Uh, it, there may be some uh, corner cases that are not clear cut at all. But I think that uh, using my Bitcoin node under Tor in uh, in in uh, Tunisia in order to open a, a channel to receive money after I am excluded by the financial system. And now I have to download and validate the dick pic, dick pic of somebody. I think that's a, that's a very clear cut example. Is, I, so I think that's actually a, a really interesting clarification on that, because obviously, uh, especially nowadays when it is easier than ever to spin up uh, many other people who may not actually be people, but are just you operating a farm of bots and AI is going to make this even, even easier to generate uh, human seeming actors in a space that there is some weight that needs to be given to those who have, well, shall we say the largest uh, proof of work, the biggest history within the system, because yeah, you may be overwhelmed by a new majority. That doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, uh, as we see in our political democracy, uh, the majority is not, uh, not always the wisest. Uh, but yeah, I think right. that, so you are yeah. sorry to interrupt again, but you're no, touching no, you're two good. different concepts. <laughs> One concept is a civil attack. So those can mm -hmm. be fake people. And that's true. That's the mm -hmm. vulnerability of voting. And that's even why Bitcoin had to introduce proof of work because of civil attack. Mm -hmm. But the other point is what you're mentioning now. Majority is not always right. So if we are if we are in a dark alley and there is a uh, there is three rapists and one victim, majority is clearly in favor of rapists. That doesn't make the situation fair 
in, in any way, even if you have the majority. So majority is not always a good account of who is right and who is wrong. And in the case of uh, spam or off topic in a forum, in a case of an internet tool, majority, even if it's made of, of, of real people, is still not always alone, a, a necessarily good proxy of, uh, of fairness and, and good etiquette. So to, to get back to the previous example, now you are not faking up these, uh, these accounts. You are really calling all your gardening friends to storm my forum and to only post gardening stuff in, in my forum. That's actually a very uh, unethical behavior. That's an abuse of the system. And we, we, we shouldn't be afraid to call abuse and abuse. We are not, uh, th I mean, unless we really want to redefine everything, in a way that just uh, closing the uh, closing the port 12 in your in your router is 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 a violence because because uh, because everybody's supposed to use, use any port on any other computer uh, you we have to accept common sense definition of the word spam or abuse of a system that doesn't mean that we want to initiate physical force on these people we can't this is all cypherpunk it just means that i want there is a technical uh, uh, vulnerability to some behavior that was uh, not included in the use cases of the system that I joined for. And now I want, as a previous utilizer, I want to somehow close this technical vulnerability, if possible, which is an entirely different discussion. There is a, like, there is a debate among the, so there is a debate about the fact that this vulnerability exists and that something can be defined spam. And I am very strong opinionated in this debate. And then there is debate about can we even do something about that? And somebody says, no, we can't. And I'm completely open-minded about this kind of objection. I'm, I really feel it and they may be right. And I don't have strong opinion about this. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the perfect segue. Cause I think we've, we've set the stage well in terms of uh, how to actually, let's say, speak uh, correctly. Like when we, because otherwise there's a lot of the discussion that you see on, on Bitcoin Twitter, which is mainly just uh, some people calling anyone that are inscribing stuff, uh, anyone who's arbitrarily inscribing data onto Bitcoin is being called a shitcoiner and a scammer. And anyone who is saying that they're a shitcoiner and a scammer is being called a, you know, an ADIQ uh, maxi who doesn't know what they're talking about. And, and you know, a lot of arguments being made on both sides that are probably missing the mark because they're not actually arguing about the same thing when they're coming together. It's just a lot of people sort of uh, shouting their frustrations into the void. Uh, and so I, I think what I'd love to kind of hear from you, because I've, I've seen a lot of takes on inscriptions. I, I don't even know if it's worth our time to talk about ordinals, because that's not actually uh, in my mind, what the debate is, is really about at all. I, I, if, if you disagree, let me know, but it seems to me the mm, I thing will, that really, I will, uh, yeah, I will just disagree ahead. for one point, uh, which okay. is this, everybody could use or, or abuse if we accept this definition that I will accept the global consensus to force or push everybody else to, uh, replicate this, some information forever. And some people did it, for example, the, the ASCII Bernanke. Uh, back then, and I did it when my when my daughter was born. I wrote in op return, "Welcome Amanda" in a block, and I used the the website of my friend Ricardo Casata, Eternity World, Eternity World, to 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 make it. This was still something that could be considered spam, 
And indeed, uh, Luke uh, was very angry with uh, my friend Ricardo and me for promoting this website. And we, we, dis we still disagree about the, because I, we don't really disagree, but I understand that there is a lot of subtlety here because uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, in this case, Luke's point is that I am paying the miner, but I'm not paying his node to store Welcome Amanda forever. He will uh, gladly volunteer his node to, uh, to pass my transaction even transactions he disagrees with, but he will not volunteer for being a, a cheap uh, uh, replication of uh, Google Google Drive for everybody else because that's that's an abuse. But the, there was even if we did uh, discuss this back in 2015, in this case, there still was no strong incentive for me to write uh, "Welcome, Amanda." I love Amanda, but if the tr transaction cost was $1,000, I was not going to write Welcome Amanda. I, would, I, I could write it on a wall instead of writing it on the Bitcoin timechain. So the, 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 the use of um, Bitcoin to encode stuff was very, very tempting uh, when the fees were very, very low. But the, the fee market were going, was going to solve this big time because when it's too expensive, very few people will do it. Uh, the, the ordinal theory, so the way, uh, the, the, the fact that you can write something on the, on the chain and now you can pretend that you are selling this content somehow. For anyone listening after the fact, perhaps you just heard a slight interruption. We are now back. Uh, maybe we'll find out later. We missed some of the brilliance that Giacomo just dropped on us. But we were, uh, you were talking, Giacomo, just about incentives and ordinal theory and inscribing data and how the fact that incentives matter because what it allows you to do by selling a quote NFT is to make money by assigning that value to it and finding other people who are willing to buy it, who then become willing recipients of what many other people in the network determine to be spam. So can, can we maybe just start there, uh, given that we're not exactly sure what was just captured at the last uh, minute or so of the recording? Uh, just, just to set the stage again, I do apologize. No, 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 no problem. No problem with those. So uh, we always add, we were saying before, a spam phone call. So you're doing something else, you receive a spam phone call. But when you have some moment, which is particularly rich of uh, Ponzi schemes and scams and frauds of many kind, like with Bitcoin, now we have, I have many friends that receive phone calls of people selling them some kind of Bitcoin business or even more crypto business or maybe NFT business. Or by, maybe in the 90s, you had this kind of call to sell you blue chips of uh, in, in the late 90s or stuff like that. So when you have, uh, when there is a scam, so a big fraud where you're trying to, uh, to basically sell um, the moon to somebody else uh, without really having the moon, so basically misleading them, the, the incentive to uh, apply an aggressive uh, spammy marketing campaign increased. This is not unique to Bitcoin. In general, uh, the spammers, they, uh, they have an incentive, which is of different reasons, but scammers have a very strong incentive to become spammers because uh, if you have an honest business, then you also are very aware of your reputation you don't want to annoy people that may be interested in your business. So you will not practice spam as a commercial meaning. But if you are, try if you are just trying to select for morons and you are just trying to uh, create the Ponzi scheme, if you are selling one coin, then spam 
is a great marketing tool for your scam. So I partially disagree that the problem of inscription is only a problem of spam. The problem of encoding data in the Bitcoin time chain was only a problem of spam. When I wrote Welcome Amanda, when my daughter was born uh, with, the, with the tool Eternity World by my good friend Riccardo Casatta, Luke Dashir got uh, angry at us because he said, you are spamming the blockchain. And then we, we had all the spam discussion. It was 2015 and we had the discussion, like I said, how I'm spamming, I'm paying the fees. And Luke is saying, ah, you are paying one miner. You're not paying me to store, to download and store your, your, your message, welcome message forever. And I say, well, but you don't have to do that if you don't want. And he said, but yes, I chose to volunteer my node to help Bitcoiners all around the world, including payments I disagree with. I did not volunteer for you to write stuff that could just be written on Twitter with the same efficacy. So when, when I look, say, when I volunteer my node to help Bitcoiners paying with Bitcoin, I know that there may be some payments that I disagree with, but this payment have no alternative. So uh, I prefer that there is an alternative to traditional rails. While when you write Welcome Amanda, you could just write that on a, on a, on a freaking uh, postcard. So uh, don't use my note, please. So we had the, the spam discussion, but my incentive to write these were only sentimental. So even if I love my daughter, uh, after the discussion with Luke, I was less willing to write another, another message. And even if I disagreed with Luke, I would still have not have a strong incentive to pay for a 50, uh, uh, well, maybe for the burn of your daughter, you can, but you cannot every day, right? I will not use, uh, uh, so Eternity Wall, that this product was used basically as Twitter. You could write whatever and you could comment other people and you could press like, and in order to press like, you created an on-chain transaction. It was super spammy, but that was not scammy. So you could not really use it as uh, inside the Ponzi scheme to sell something, uh, something uh, uh, ludicrously uh, enriching to other people. So, uh, so encoding stuff in the time chain is a problem in itself, but it's self-mitigated to a degree. While selling, uh, selling monkey JPEG is a problem of scam and not of spam, and inscriptions are largely an overlap between these two. And without the scam part, the spam part could be way less serious than it is. Okay, that's a really that's a really interesting distinction there because I my my initial reaction was to want to kind of separate the two and try to look at it just from the perspective of encoding on the blockchain. But your point here, if I'm understanding correctly, is that basically without the scam incentive, the spam is going to naturally be priced out much more quickly. Uh, now, the, with even with the scam incentive to the spam, it may still and likely, yes, definitely still will be priced out, but it's going to happen over a much longer time frame and ultimately cause much more harm at the spam level because the spam, or excuse me, because the scam allows the spam to continue perpetuating. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely fair. The, the oh. damage made by the spam attack will outlast the end of the scam attack. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, and you know, you, uh, I'll link to your talk from BTC Prague because I thought it was 
like fantastic. And you went through so many different instances from, uh, from Bitcoin's history, uh, like, you know, uh, like colored sats and all these, all these things that basically, uh, your, your point being that there, you know, there's kind of nothing new under the sun here. This is a slightly different flavor of something that if you've been around a while, you've seen, uh, and, but you had, uh, you had one slide in there and I, I, I just took a screenshot of it for this so that I could remember it, but you had, you had six points where you said, let's try to clarify you said, have ordinals broken Bitcoin? Have ordinals been enabled by Taproot? Are ordinals and inscriptions the same? Are ordinals useful for censorship resistance? Are ordinals new or innovative? And then are ordinals retarded? And you said, spoiler alert, the answer to all of those questions is no, except for the last one, are ordinals retarded, which is yes. You also clarified, the started out with a definition of retarded, which was very useful because it has many meanings, uh, which for that nuanced speech were, were quite appropriate. So I, I think, and you've touched on a couple of these already, but I, I think where we ultimately come down to right now and where the conversation seems to be is a lot of people are saying, what should we do? And other people are saying, well, it's not a question of should at all. You just need to let them, the market will figure this out. Uh, free market incentives will align. And ultimately, this kind of junk is going to be priced out because it's really not, not as valuable as what will come, which is the transfer of ever more large amounts of monetary value across a permissionless network. But there are people who are actively doing things right now to try and uh, deal with this problem as they see it. Uh, you mentioned Luke, uh, who with Ocean, uh, the the new pool, is basically you know they're taking some flack for basically filtering out uh, some of these transactions or not in, you know not including them in their blocks. Uh, to which people are saying you know you're censoring these transactions. To which they reply, no, I, we're just you know we just are not uh, you know including spam in our blocks because we believe this is spam so we're not going to include that can you talk about that a little bit and and do you think this is the right approach what ocean is doing do you think it's uh a step in the right direction because obviously you've you've made it very clear you believe that these uh inscriptions are spam that ordinals as a meta protocol is a scam that fa facilitates the spam so what is your thought on what Ocean is doing? Do you think that there's a better way to deal with this? Do you have faith that the free market's going to work this out, but just it's going to take way too long? How how are you approaching that right now? So, by on a very general uh, on a very general level, uh, I made another speech, a very short speech at the introduction of the launch of the Ocean Pool in South Carolina. So I was there and I gave this speech. Maybe you can find it still on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I think it was recorded and the speech was exactly about the idea of letting the free market decide and i mentioned a science fiction book uh, by isaac asimov uh, which is basically the first book of the foundation cycle and in the book there is a problem because this uh, prophet this mathematical prophet harry seldon uh, already had a plan trust the plan there is a great plan that that it will just solve everything and people are seeing something unpredicted, unpredictable, which seems to go beyond the plan, and is, which is bad. And they are wondering, uh, there is like many factions, and some, some people are saying, oh, this is new, so the plan has failed. 
So pack it up, go on. The plan is failed. Let's panic. The sky is falling. Some other people are saying, no, wait, if this is happening, it means that the plan was also somehow uh, pricing this in. So no panic, do nothing. The plan is, is certain. Trust the plan. The plan will take care of it. And then some, uh, there is a third faction which is saying, wait, wait, the plan still works. And the plan did take care of that. But Harry Seldon included us with our will to, to, to face this problem and act on this problem and change it as part of the plan. So the plan will work, but it doesn't need that we must do nothing. We will do something, and this is part of the plan. And I think that even if I, my Asimov is not ideologically my favorite uh, writer, but from the uh, but, but this question is very, very good. And it, it, I think this is the same when everybody mentioned the free market that fixed stuff. So the free market will fix stuff, I'm, I'm sure, eventually. Eventually, free market means following justice and property rights, and crime means violating property rights. And I, I have faith that over, the, over time, not stealing other people's stuff and not hurting others will figure out more things because you learn and you, uh, and you basically improve, while when you hurt others or you steal their things, everything goes bad eventually. So eventually, the, United, the, United, the Soviet Union will collapse, uh, but maybe it will take 90 years. Eventually, uh, people will discover a cure for uh, AIDS uh, uh, in the market, but maybe it will take, I don't know how much. So the market will figure it out, but we are the market and everything that we do may change stuff in one direction or the other, especially if we are very influential by being, for example, ash rate uh, controlling people that have some kind of ethics, or if we are developers that can code good code, or if we are so-called influencer that can change minds, uh, or if we are teachers and we are good at explaining things. So in all these roles, we can accelerate the change. This is not, uh, this is not interfering in the free market. This is being part of the free market. And the free market will figure it out because we may be part of the free market. We may be part of the free market in very passive ways. Just don't do anything. And, uh, and uh, like intrinsic, uh, incentives without any plan will still fix it, or it may require a free market initiative, which is a little bit more active and a bit, a little bit more creative and a little bit more intentional. So, but it's still free market. So about this specific problem, Ocean in particular doesn't want to fix the problem with, uh, uh, with spam filters, uh, in a, in a very special way. Ocean wants to fix the problem with other two, uh, tools. One is uh, uh, the decentralized block template creation. So make so that it is the miner choosing the block and not the pool. So that even if uh, the pool may go bad, they may have a very bad uh, uh, attitude towards Bitcoin. They may be in more interested in making a quick buck now at the expenses of Bitcoin than keeping the system sustainable. Uh, we can, we can be more reassured that small individual miners, they may, may, they may have a more uh, long-term thinking they, or may, they, they may be less re more resistant to some other kind of uh, um, external incentives in the system. Uh, especially think about the future in which the governments will pay miners in order to exclude all Bitcoin transactions except for the uh, US uh, government validated ones. In this scenario, profit maximizing miners they will just get the bribe from the government and maximize their profit. 
while more ideologically driven or long-term thinker miners that know that their investment in Bitcoin will lose any significance if it get, becomes PayPal, they will lose, they will happily refuse this, this bribe in order to include the transactions in the blocks. So uh, the, the first step is decentralizing this decision. The second step is actually uh, making all the payout uh, um, uh, non-custodial, which will be done by with Lightning Network. This is probably definitely out, out, out of topic. So Ocean main, Ocean, Ocean looks big plan for the problems of uh, miners not always having the best interest, the interest of Bitcoin at mine is not filtering at the mempool level. It's just uh, cre leaving people free because his uh, idea is maybe we will end up with the majority of miners that uh, are considering spam problematic and want to do something about that. But as long as they will have to depend on, on 11 or 10 pools to make the decision for them, this uh, minority or ma majority of uh, Bitcoin loving miners will not manifest itself. So the main point of Ocean is make it possible for this kind of majority or minority to manifest itself. It's interesting that uh, uh, even just a minority that will reject spam will include in exchange in the same space other transactions that the spam will have outpriced. So every time you, you make a selection, you make the choice to exclude a dick pic, you may include an economic transaction instead of it. So even if eventually 60%, 70% of the hash power will still include the dick pics, having 30% on average of blocks that are including actual transaction instead is still a relief on the network, if you have 30% at least. So uh, the, the bet of Luke is that there are some uh, long-term long thinking miners and they can be enabled by, by block template creation decentralization. And that's, that's uh, orthogonal. Another thing is that Luke is, uh, uh, as, uh, while is working on this future evolution, he just brought Eligius back, his old mining pool. And his, his old mining pool was always using Luke's fork uh, of uh, Bitcoin Core, uh, which is called Bitcoin Knots. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin Knots always differed from Core uh, about uh, uh, spam management, basically, which is a, another very important thing. Bitcoin Core, as we said before, we already said it, will filter spam. Even spam that is paying a lot. If you have two operators, if you have a, a 90 byte or 81 byte operator, Bitcoin Core will filter it out, but will not filter out things consistently. So the policy of Bitcoin Core being the result of a very, very complex uh, political debate among many developers on, on something subtitles and uh, as not just the definition of spam, which I think was very clear a few years ago, but the best strategy to fight spam, because you have this problem that, for example, uh, op return is a, is a spam, uh, where I wrote my message for my daughter is spam, but is spam, which is very easy to prune, to prune from the UTXO set. So in your current database on us, of us, unspent transaction, you see that op return and you can easily prune. Uh, while if you use a bare multisig uh, fake key in order to, or fake signature or fake key in order to uh, actually um, uh, write the same message, this will be, in theory, in principle, unprunable from the UTXO set forever. So, so some developers were saying, yes, there is spam, 
but if we try to block the most obvious way to do spam, other ways will be used and the other ways are more damaging for Bitcoin than this. So let this, uh, let this more open. So for example, many Bitcoin core developers decided to expand the, uh, the upper turn from 40, which was initial, to 80, because so they give more, sp more space. They, they, they allow some vent, uh, some venting to the spam so that it damages less. And, uh, or they decided to not extend to Taproot all the script limits that were included for pre-Taproot transaction. So Bitcoin Knots, which is the node used by Luke, uh, is more opinionated in this, is, is making the same choice of core of filtering some spam, even if it pays a lot of fees for the same reason, but it's taking a more uh, decise appro uh, uh, approach in that regard. Bit uh, another proposal like Peter Todd is proposing a version of Bitcoin Core that doesn't filter out any spam if uh, the fees are high enough to enter blocks anyway. So Peter Todd's reasoning is, okay, this may be spam. Well, actually, I hope that Peter was so clear about this. He's a little bit, he's a little bit more ambiguous on that, but my still manning of Peter's proposal would be, this is spam, but as, uh, since it pays high fees, it will enter the blocks anyway with high probability. So if you filter it out, you are just incentivizing people to go directly to the miner and pay off bed. So let's remove any filter of spam when the spam is paying miners, not because it's nice, but because it will enter anyway and we have to minimize damage. So this Peter Todd's patch is uh, maybe problematic. For example, Luke will say, yeah, but now if you use that as a miner, you are not helping normal users. So the blocks you will produce will, will, will contribute no relief and you are basically legitimizing spam from the protocol level. So, uh, but these two policies, Luke's policy of uh, maximizing filtering and Peter Todd's policies uh, of uh, minimizing filtering are both consistent in a way. Uh, Bitcoin Core though is not, it's like a, a political compromise among these, which is very, uh, it's very, it's very inconsistent in a way. It, it, it was generated by a historical process of people fighting with each other. And so now if you read, why should the Bitcoin Core filter this in the output, but not in the witness when you use TypeScript uh, path spending? It doesn't make any sense. It was just a result of a negotiation, of a debate, of a cross vetoes, and it's just an historical, uh, historical relic. So the, the point here, the point of Ocean is that uh, eventually the miners will decide, and this is good for Bitcoin, even if they decide in a wrong way, at least it's hard to take over all the decision and to coordinate the decision. There will still be different entities de 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 deciding in different ways. For the time being, I will keep using the node that I created and I curate with the policies that I curate, which are not a change of philosophy from Bitcoin Core. It's the same philosophy, just applied more consistently. And Peter Todd's proposal would be another philosophy uh, also applied more consistently, while Core is a little bit in between. Now, I I appreciate that because I, I think that really the beauty of all of this is that it's as you you alluded to earlier, this is the free market in action, right? This is what the free market looks like. It looks like people having different interpretations of what is valuable and what is not. And when it comes to protocol level interactions, 
in a free market, it's still people trying to make sure that they observe the rules of the protocol at the very basic level, but having different interpretations about how they think, what they find valuable in terms of uses of that very finite block space. So it's kind of a like, it's one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that there is so much debate about this. There is so much argumentation. And I think that that's a very beneficial thing. Like the opposite situation is you have Vitalik uh, who decides to you know, put out his roadmap for the next however many years with merging and purging and surging and whatever else, and makes all the decisions top down. And there's ultimately no recourse for that. And, you know, I, I want to be conscious of uh, of your time here, Giacomo, because I know uh, we're, we're getting up near, near the end. But I, I wanted to just quickly read a tweet that you sent earlier today, actually, that I thought was very insightful, which is centralization is always more efficient until it collapses. Decentralization is always less efficient until it's the only option left. Most decentralized thing, solo mining, too inefficient to live. Current efficient thing, template producing pools, too centralized to survive. And then you gave a nice spectrum of Bitcoin credit on PayPal being maximally efficient, but too gay, down to solo mining being maximally badass, but too efficient. And I think that that's, that's a good framework for approaching things because everything involves trade-offs, right? Like, yes, centralization is always more efficient, uh, but then it doesn't work at a certain point. Decentralization is less efficient, but it might be all that is preventing you from trending towards a centralized, totalitarian, top-down world. So I, I appreciated that tweet, and I appreciate the context that you've given here today. Um, again, conscious of your scarce time, is there anything else that you think it's critical that people know or understand or is a misconception you know well, at, across any of these topics because i want to make sure you have a chance to kind of like get that out if there's anything that wasn't covered i will just elaborate a little bit more on the last uh, point you made about my tweet because i will give you context about that that actually comes partly from the the discussion i was having on twitter but partly from a recent discussion a couple of days ago with people within ocean so some people within ocean they were a little bit uh, they were having a black pill moment because they said, wait, we are doing all this, but what if we decentralize block creation and then 99% of the block creation will anyway uh, choose to delegate their policy to somebody else because it's more efficient. So we, we are fighting against the optimization, economical optimization here, because uh, uh, even if we give the chance to decentralize the process, Maybe the people will actually choose to run uh, the same the same uh, policies that the, that the centralized pools are running now, and so there will be no actual difference. And that's where I started to think that uh, this idea of uh, maximizing so Bitcoin brought a very good uh, a very good tool to our fight uh, for freedom, which is considering incentives. So if we consider incentives. Everything we're going to build will be more resilient, will be more resistant, it will be anti-fragile, it will become eventually unstoppable. But this, this fact that we consider incentives doesn't mean that uh, everything which is uh, popular economically at a certain moment is always the thing we want, is always uh, the thing we want to fight for. So, for, for example, if you really want to maximize profit, maybe you don't open a mining farm at all. Maybe you just get hired by Goldman Sachs or even better by the Federal Reserve. 
That's you maximizing process. So by uh, taking this 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 reasoning, this reasoning to the absurd limit, if we really want Bitcoin to be incentive compatible, we should all just quit Bitcoin and go to work for the Fed because we make more money that way. But it's clear that we are already choosing to forfeit some possible short-term uh, gains in order to have these long-term gains. It's not about, it's not only about being altruistic. It's not about uh, being uh, egoistic versus altruistic. It's also about being egoistically long-term thinking versus egoistically short-term thinking. So if we understand that the fiat model is broken, that this is unsustainable, that there are internal contradictions that it will make it crash, even if we are not altruistic, we work on Bitcoin because we think that we and our families and our children and grandchildren will be better off uh, if we change the system from fiat to Bitcoin. We are going against the, max the Eastern maximization of profit because we are going toward a future maximization of utility. So if we think that uh, miners, if, we, if our only assumption is a pure maximization of instant profit, then there is no way that, so uh, as I said in the tweet, uh, solo mining is, a, is an ideological stand that is very good for the future of Bitcoin, but it's so bad for immediate profit that, that it's not realistic that anybody will ever face. So solo mining means that you will get all your block, but you will get it on average. If you are a medium miner, you will get it in 100 years and you will be dead by that. So nobody is so forward looking. Uh, very, very interesting to say, solo mining is not unprofitable from an economic point of view. It's just that it's not you profiting, it's your grandchildren only because you have to wait for 90 years of, of expenses in order to get one single block. So uh, solo mining is profitable, but it's so forward looking, it's so forward thinking, it's so uh, low time preference that it cannot be uh, realistically demanded uh, from anybody. So nobody will just get poor uh, in order for their grand grandchildren to be super rich uh, running a solo mining thing. But uh, on the other extreme, not mining at all and just buying uh, uh, ETF from Goldman Sachs is the opposite, right? It is maximally, maximally profitable now because you are not even running the uncertainty of mining, but it really sucks. It's, it's really a, it's a very shitty Bitcoin thing to do. Uh, so in a way, uh, decentralized pool template is in between. Is it true that not doing decentralized templating and just delegate your choice for MEV or any other reason to somebody else is more profitable? Yes, it is. Is it true that it's though damaging for the future of Bitcoin? So some uh, low time preference entrepreneurs may decide and will probably decide to take back the power and to do the templates. I think it's very realistic to assume because the other assumption under the other assumption that there are no forward-looking people in the world and that everybody is just a monkey following Eastern gratification, under that assumption, Bitcoin cannot exist in the first place. So we are still assuming that instant incentives do matter, future incentives do matter, and there is somehow an equilibrium in society, and we have to aim for that. So this tweet was not only about block templates, it was more in general. Uh, it, Bitcoin is always in this trade-off. If you are too pragmatic, you just remain fiat. It's like market cap. Uh, what is the number one in market cap? It's not Bitcoin, it's the US dollar. If you are really are a market cap absolutist, go with the dollar, not with Bitcoin at all. 
because we are the minority. We are not optimizing for liquidity. But if you are too unrealistic and you create your shitcoin tomorrow morning with a long of great ideas, a very, very altruistic idea, but you don't face the reality of network effects, your stuff will never work. So if you maximize for, for current profit, you go fiat. If you maximize for pure idealism without any technical consideration and actual real, any realism constraints, you go shitcoin. If you stay in between, you may discover Bitcoin. Wow, that's a uh, that's a beautiful beautiful sentiment. So, is it uh, is it safe for me to assume that your perspective on uh, ordinal pushers would be that they are extremely high time preference, or is there an argument to be made that uh, that is probably the argument they would make that well, actually, we are saving Bitcoin because we are driving up the fees. And now people aren't talking about the security budget problem, which was never really going to be a huge problem anyway. It, what's your thought on that? Or is, you know, is there a spectrum of people? Are, do you think there are some people that are really think that this is genuinely helping, but not perhaps realizing the damage that it may be doing from an incentive standpoint? Or is it all just high time preference behavior? I think it's all just time preference for the people actually doing this stuff. And it's a misguided economic analysis, in my opinion, from people condoning this stuff as helpful because of fee. So think about the consideration. So some people may think about a problem and then give a label to that problem. And then they only think about the label and not the problem anymore. For example, why do we need high fees? Because in the future, if we have high fees, then we will incentivize with these fees a very high uh, ash rate and a high ash rate, what does it do? It makes reorging the chain expensive. So if you receive a transaction in the future and this transaction you want to make be sure that is not uh, reversed, is not double spent, is not uh, censored, is not reorged, then you need uh, ash. Uh, well, if you have a lower ash rate, you have to wait more. If you have a higher ash rate, you have to wait less for the same result. So this is it. The security budget, uh, like a, ha a buzzword, is just a way to say that higher hash rate means that you will have to wait less to achieve the same security. In 2009, Bitcoin had a very low hash rate, but it's not like it was generally insecure. It's just that to have the same security of today uh, without, uh, against double spending, you had back then to wait more blocks. Uh, the specific calculation is very tricky, assumes a lot of uh, details, a lot of nuances. But to keep it very, very simple, in 2009, low hash rate, you have to wait many blocks for the same security for the same amount. In 2023, high hash rate, you, have, you, you must wait less, fewer confirmation to have the same security or even more. So basically, high, fee, high fees means high hash rate, which, is mean, which means that it's faster to get this kind of reorganized security. But if this hash rate don't, uh, if, uh, if these fees that subsidize the hash rate do not come from the people buying the anti-double spending security, but come from an exogenous market, for example, market for inscription. And this market is not the market of the people paying for, for a reorg resistance of payments, then people paying for the reorg resistance, they will get more reorg resistance but they will get it at a higher price because now they are outcompeted 
by an external demand to the same supply. So it's, this is like saying, uh, you go to the restaurant to eat. Now you have the Vikings that pay to go there to, to shout spam, spam, spam. And this, this is good for you because the more money the restaurant make, the, the better they will be at hiring a new chef, the chef that can give you good food. But that's not true because your cost to access to the food now is higher because now you have to take more time to speak with the waiter and you have to shout louder. So this is totally zero sum. Uh, yes, fees are paying the miners. Miners are increasing hash rate. Hash rate is reducing the, your waiting time for security. But now your waiting time is increasing because at the same fee level, you will be included in blocks way later. And it's, neg it's zero sum if we are lucky uh, or negative sum otherwise. So uh, the only thing that can actually improve uh, security for transactions is fees from transactions, not fees from outside. That those are, these are an external demand, which is, yes, subsidizing the, the supply, but also taking the demand away from the initial use case. That's a really interesting distinction, actually. And I think it's uh, being lost in most of the conversations because the general assumption is just that uh, more fees equals good, no matter where the demand for those fees is coming from. Yeah. Let me, but, give, let me yeah. give you another example that I think will happen eventually. When uh, governments will start to bribe miners to create empty blocks, they will subsidize uh, miners. So in order to bribe miners back to come back to us and actually include transaction, we as the black market, we will have to subsidize miners more. So that will mean a huge increase in fees, but that will not be a good symptom. That would be an actual symptom of an attack. So is that so fees are like uh, high temperature fever it's a good thing fever is something that we, we want fever because fever will boil bugs so we want fever to heal so high fees is a fees are a price for censorship resistance and high fees means that somebody is paying a high price for censorship resistance but why the price is high could be because there is a high subsidy for for censorship and so we have to counterbalance that or with the high, high fees. So in a future where uh, the government is, is giving $10 billion to miners every day just to keep blocks empty, then fees will be extraordinarily high because we will have to basically bribe some, uh, some dissident miner to include a, a, a full block. Uh, but this fee is very, very high. It will not be a good thing. Uh, so it's, it's true that some Bitcoiners say high fees are good. Yes, in the sense that our fee, our, our fees are like, uh, you know, uh, like scars in your face. That means that you are fighting and you are a warrior. But it's not like, it means that something bad is happening and you are reacting in a good way. So censorship is arriving and you are reacting in a good way. In a way, even the existence of Bitcoin is not itself very good. It's a reaction to the fact that we were heavily censored and heavily inflated away. So Bitcoin is like a reactive thing that is taking back uh, freedom from censorship and from inflation. But in, it's not a good sign in the first place. If, if everything was very good, we would just have magic uh, central banks that never inflate money and magic banks that never censor transactions. So it's, it's a complicated. Sometimes you can get lost and you say, uh, so like, yeah, that's typically like the, the, the baby is, uh, is uh, the baby's learning how to work and it will, it will fall down and will have some scratches on the, on the knees. 
which is good. I mean, they have to, we can say it's good, but it's not like I go around and I see babies and I take a knife and I, I start hurting them on the knees and that's good. <laughs> now you are, you're confusing the, uh, the symptom of a good reaction with uh, something in itself. Like it becomes like a fetish, like high fee fetish. High fees are not intrinsically good. They are good if they, they signal a strong price, a strong demand for censorship resistance. But that's a completely different thing from anything which rises the fees is equally good. That's a, a good, I think, thing to end on because you've, you've wrapped that together really well. And I, I hope that people listening to this uh, take a step back because it's, it's really easy to have knee-jerk reactions to things, especially when you're talking about them on, on Twitter or on Noster. And this is clearly a very polarizing topic, which again is a good thing. It's good to have this debate. But I, I would encourage people to, uh, to check their assumptions and to get back to the, uh, let's say, the core ideas, you know, people, uh, Bitcoiners, we love to talk about first principles, right? But I think that it is incredibly important and specifically here because we have to define, I guess, what is the purpose of the network? And the point you made at the end, I think, is it's got my wheels spinning a little bit thinking about it, but just, you know, high fees don't necessarily mean good. It's a good reaction to have to something happening. It's signaling that things are working properly but that doesn't mean that the disease that is causing it is necessarily good in the long run. It still may be doing damage, even if the immune response of the system is appropriate. So that's a, that's a good, it's a good framework for looking at it. So I appreciate that. I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while now, <laughs> but Giacomo, Again, I, I want to thank you for coming here. Last question I'll ask you totally off topic, but are you reading anything right now you'd recommend? I am so I was uh, uh, I'm spending the last days of two months in El Salvador. I'm in beautiful El Zonte right now. And uh, I wanted to do two things, uh, learning Spanish and learning surfing. And I failed miserably at both. <laughs> but uh, in order to learn Spanish, uh, I did some Duolingo and I bought from the Bitcoin farmer market here in El Zonte, the Spanish version of the Fontainehead of Ayn Rand. So now, wow. I'm, so this is a hard book, even in English. So now I'm trying every night, very, very small pieces of Spanish Fontainehead, which is not trivial to do. So that's my, that's my challenge right now. That is a bold way to learn Spanish. I've got to yes. say, as you said, that book is not, uh, it's, it's dense in whatever your native language might be, even more so in a language you're trying to learn. So more power to you. Uh, it just And with regard to surfing, it just sounds like, you know, you just need a little bit more practice. Just got to get beaten up by those waves a little bit more. And then you'll maybe, be good. Maybe, but, maybe. Yeah. I, would give it, uh, I would give it another try. I will be back here soon. So eventually well, I will give it another try. I, I look forward to getting back there myself uh, sooner rather than later. But Giacomo... Thank you for coming on here. Bitcoin is scarce, but Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So I appreciate you <laughs> sharing your scarce time on another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you again soon, hopefully in the flesh next year. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Speak soon. And that's a wrap on this Bitcoin talk episode of the Bitcoin podcast. 
If you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, head to bitcoinpodcast.net or hit me up on social media. On Noster, head to primal.net slash walker. And on Twitter, search for at walkeramerica or at titcoinpodcast. You can also watch the video version of this show on X or on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash at walkeramerica or rumble by searching for at walkeramerica. Bitcoin is scarce. There will only ever be 21 million. But Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So thank you for spending your scarce time to listen to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Until next time, stay free.